Hello, and welcome to What Our Point Weekly, where we bring together a variety of perspectives to discuss the biggest stories of the week and decide what our point, or if in fact there are no point at all. Please, if you like what you hear, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Today is Tuesday, January 26th. I have with me Dan. Hello. Nicholas. Howdy. And I've got the little chef of the financial world, Remy. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, so, Dan, what did you think of the first week of the Biden administration? Resounding success. I think it's great to have sanity back in the White House. And people, the biggest uh, criticism is that Biden was doing so much through executive actions where he did things like give people more food stamps and free lunch for kids and ask people to wear masks in federal buildings. So um, I thought it was a pretty good, pretty good first week. What about y'all? Remy, as a foreigner, how did you react to the American inauguration? I thought it was very aspiring. Uh, it was America uh, as it best, despite uh, the restriction from uh, from the pandemic, uh, especially the, the young uh, women who, who wrote uh, a superb uh, poem. Uh, I thought that was uh, uh, marvelous. So again, uh, we're starting from a from a stronger start for for Biden and uh, its ability to uh, replace uh, the U.S. as the, the leader of the world and being admired by the rest of the world. Um, so I was I was proud to live in the U.S. Uh, during the inauguration. Yeah, Amanda Gorman, she was really good. She it. It, it, that reminded Agreed. me of like one of those young football players or basketball players who's like too young to realize the how big the moment is, so they just play or do extremely well. Because it, yeah, she did not seem like she was 22 or whatever. And it, it was also intense how her story, like she had written half of the poem and then changed it halfway through as the Capitol attack was happening. So it felt very like Francis Scott Key, where she's writing as the events are unfolding outside of her window. Yeah, that was a very <laughs> epic part of the inauguration what about you nick did you feel like some of this was the america of your childhood yeah i i really love peaceful transitions of power i'm a huge fan i don't care if it's let me say you're a minority among republicans for that well yeah i i don't know if i'm a minority in that view i think people are often silent when they shouldn't be silent but i uh i really am a fan of peaceful transitions of power uh, I think it is a fundamental uh, process in our country, and as the you know one of the world's oldest democracies, I think it is it is something that is a, a miracle of of, of politics. <clears throat> and uh, yes, I, I am a huge fan of it, and I think it, it is always a very almost spiritual moment in in our history when the, when these occur. I wish the majority of our country, I think the vast majority, overwhelming majority, felt that way, uh, and I do think that that's the case i just think that there's some folks that are kind of blinded by rhetoric or political opinion they don't they don't stop and, and realize that that's a that's a magic process so it, it it seems like the first fight which is already happening is about impeachment but um in my opinion that uh, as we've been saying kind of for weeks it, it seems like it's going to be a lot of song and dance and a, a lot of like room for Mitch McConnell to just fuck things up for Biden during the first couple of weeks or month of his administration. But you're already seeing how he like added the he tried to add some sort of writer about the filibusters. But then 
Joe Manchin and the other senator, I forget her Cinema. name. Cinema. Cinema. Um, they came out and said that they would not vote for that, so then he backed off. So you're already seeing sort of the battle lines being drawn on this. So I, we've talked about this on an episode before, but can you all explain, or Dan, maybe you're the best to explain this, how, so filibusters basically nowadays make it impossible to pass large legislation unless you have 60 votes. But then... There's something called reconciliation, which allows you to pass something with just 50 votes. And that's how the Republicans passed, like, the tax cuts and also... That's how Obama... That's how the Obamacare got repealed. Right. So... The ACA passed that way, too. No, it didn't. It got fixed that way. It got originally passed by the Senate, but... So how does that work? You have to pass something, a bill first, and then it gets passed again through reconciliation or something like that, where things can be added to a bill that's already been passed? I don't understand it. It can only be done three times, right, per cycle, is that my understanding? The major rule is that when the Senate, the Senate writes its own rules when it starts every two years. And the rule for the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years, or maybe it codified in the like the 1870s 1880s and then kind of has kept going and it's been iterated a couple times but is that for any bill to pass the house I'm sorry the senate you need debate to end and so there used to be a, a rule where one senator could just talk forever and never end debate and then that proved when there were some senators that were difficult that joined the chamber they said okay it can't be that if one senator just talks forever we can not pass any bills and stop the Senate. So they started raising the threat, bringing a threshold to say, okay, if 90 senators vote to stop debate, we stop debate. Or And then it turned to, if 67 senators vote to stop debate, then we stop debate. And then it was amended to 60 senators vote to stop debate, then we stop debate, and we can actually vote on the bill. So the current rule right now is if a bill is under consideration and debate starts, debate doesn't end until 60 people say, debate should end. And so that's why any legislation can be just debated endlessly and never get a vote. There's an exception that if certain things are related to the budget, and the definition of that is called the Byrd rule for what is related to the budget, and there's a lot of arguments that anything that increases revenue is related to the budget, and so maybe things could be not just tax cuts could be passed through reconciliation, but that is a special process where there are no unlimited debate rules, and so only 50 votes are needed to pass a budget reconciliation. Um, and that's because co Congress passed a law a long time ago um, called, I think it was the Budget Control Act or the Budget Act, which said... Was it 1973 or 72 in the 70s when they did that? Somewhere in that range, yeah. That basically said... if the budget needs to happen. Here's a special process for debating the budget. Um, and one of the things that was not included is a filibuster. So the Republicans have used that for tax cuts, prior, most likely, or most of the time. In 2010, Obamacare passed the Senate, and then the Democrats lost the race in Massachusetts. And so they didn't have 60 votes anymore. And so there were some corrections that needed to happen to the bill. And they passed the corrections through reconciliation, which was the first primary, first like true major use of like the modern political era. And so there's a big question right now about what counts as reconciliation. The key interesting caveat is that what is allowed to pass through reconciliation, that vote only takes 50 votes. 
So let's say you want to raise the minimum wage. And some people might say, that's not a revenue raising thing. How does that count as a budget measure? Well, they'll take a vote in the Senate. And if 50 votes plus Vice President Harris say, that's a budget thing, then it can count as reconciliation. So it's like a, very, a bit of a weird rules for rules sake. And really what needs to happen is there'll be some bill passed. The Republicans will try to block it. And the Democrats have a lot of avenues to make it happen if they want. Got it. Sounds very convoluted, but now it makes a lot more sense to me. But can't you hypothetically just say everything in some way relates to the budget, whether it's a revenue or uh, an expense, everything relates to the budget? Right. So that's the argument that the progressive wing of the party and some legal progressive lawyers are taking is saying everything is budget related. And so then the Senate parliamentarian would technically give an opinion and say this is related to the budget or not, but you can overrule that opinion. By a majority vote. So we haven't seen the last of this yet, but McConnell tried to force the hand right away and say, no filibusters, you can't go back seas on it, where now maybe you could. My understanding, is there a limitation on how often you can use budget, budget reconciliation in the, there's, there's like a three, yes, yeah, a three item limit on the use of it. So it seems right. pretty likely they would use this for COVID relief, because that's pretty obviously related to the budget, right? And it seems like the, he has the political capital to spend on this? Like, how do you see the, the the first fight going? Well, I think the goal was that COVID relief would get 60, would have filibuster-proof agreement. And so they were going to do that not in reconciliation. If they think that's not the case, then they might do COVID plus other stuff. Because as Nick points out, you can't use reconciliation an infinite number of times. Oh my God. So it's kind of like a video game where you only have three lives. You got to, you know, strategically figure out when you're going to use your superpowers or whatever. It's kind of exactly. ridiculous. <laughs> um, I think so, you're, you're spot on. You are spot on. <laughs> um, so, okay. And then I guess the other thing is, um, I don't know, Remy, do you have anything? What, what, what do you think of all of this just bureaucratic nuttiness? It matters a lot. Uh, so again, looking from a, a market uh, angle, the market was very happy um, that the Democrats would not get the majority um, at the Senate, because it means uh, no new reform, uh, uh, no no constraint uh, in terms of uh, no increase in tax uh, tax rate or no constraint in uh, healthcare, for example, for uh, drug uh, prices. Then the um, Democrats were able to win the two uh, seats in in Georgia, uh, and the markets were well, okay, it's okay, you know, it's just 50-50, It would be very difficult to to pass anything, and with reconciliation. reconciliation the market started to understand that, in fact, more could be done. So that that's very important. Fortunately, it's limited, or fortunately or unfortunately, it's limited. And uh, because it's complicated, right, you need to have uh, all the Democrats to vote for. And if you are, my understanding, if you have one or two senators that are against, it will, uh, they, it will not pass. So it's so complex that you really need to prioritize and uh, the priority for, for the time being, it's stimulus, supporting the economy, and uh, COVID relief. So all of this, which is good for the economy. Um, so there are really a different layer of uh, understanding of this, uh, uh, how you say that, uh, on this way to, to, to pass law. And it's, it's very, very important. So what do you think, Dan, for it, the possibilities of them passing COVID relief with 60 votes plus? So they're going to have have to take away like people are already talking about how the $15 minimum wage is an issue for so many people and 
I guess just the amount of spending in general. I, I guess the uh, you, you're hearing all these different numbers in terms of the stimulus checks. It could be like 14, 2000. It could come every month. I was hearing a lot of just wild proposals. How do you see the middle of this shaping up? I think there's a world in which they try to break off part of the bill and see what gets 60 votes and then do the rest through reconciliation. But I think they're going to make a decision pretty quickly of, okay, we want to do something by March. Are the Republicans on board? Okay, they're not. All right, then here we go, reconciliation time. And then it might take a long time because every Democrat is going to want their policy idea ruled to be budget-related and in the bill. So I think that realistically, I think it's not going to be, nothing's going to happen for a while, kind of my short answer view. But in in March, that's when um, like unemployment insurance runs out, right? There's a couple of deadlines then. So you might see something then, and then there's going to be just a huge delay. I feel like Mitch McConnell is going to capably just run the clock out on a lot of stuff. And so I I think Democrats are going to be, I I think we're in a new age of people saying like, all right, I'm just a hypocrite now. I don't care. Like everyone has sort of gone back on so many promises at this point. We're just going to try to, drive through our priorities no matter what it takes and i think you're going to get a lot of pressure from the left to to make that happen but um all right so maybe to switch things a little bit um there's been a lot of just wild shit that's happened also in the financial markets since um the election it seems like having jerome powell at the fed and then janet yellen now at the treasury there's this like perfect symbiosis to keep liquidity going and they just keep everyone around the world happy and not you know shake anything up at all and that has created a lot of like the whole bitcoin going up a huge amount tesla being on just an absolute roar and now you've got these weird things like the gamestop thing that just happened which my my basic understanding of it is that it was trading so low for a while that these huge institutional investors short sold it basically saying that they, they expect this to lose money and go under a certain amount when that when the internet army of trolls came out and decided they didn't want that to happen they started buying a lot of the the, the underlying stock and then there were like these interesting um dominoes that fell like um the guy from the big short bought it was revealed he had gamestop stock so then a bunch more people bought in and then this like really dislikable hedge fund analysts uh, uh, like refused to keep making negative comments about it. So that like fueled the trolls even farther. So anyway, it just created this sort of snowballing internet effect, which I feel like is a recent phenomenon. And uh, you're hearing people like Larry Summers say that the SEC needs to regulate Reddit and Twitter, which I guess, Dan, your boss, Gary Gensler, your old boss at the Hillary campaign, that will be his first task, maybe. I just, it seems like all of that combines to, to put us into a very um, singular and new situation where, I don't know, when I was hearing the Larry Summers bit, he was talking about how these conditions are similar to the 1920s where there were all these, you, you know, runs on certain businesses. Remy, what do you think? Is there like some sort of, some failure going on here? Are these is, Are there asset bubbles being created that are going to burst in the near future? I think it's more about uh, a mania. So there are three elements that fuel this phenomena. Uh, a lot of uh, the retail investors usually represent 10% of uh, the total volume in the stock market. And right now it's 20%. A lot of people are stuck at home, right? They cannot uh, 
uh, travel, they can go to restaurants. So a lot, a lot of Americans have more disposable income than usual. And so they, they want to uh, uh, make the money work. The, you cannot really earn anything if you invest in the money market. So you have to invest in, a, in a equities. So you, you end up with a ton of new retail investors uh, that we haven't seen for, for a long time. Then you have also those uh, Robinhood accounts uh, that did not exist a few years ago, where now you could uh, just buy a fraction of, uh, of a share. So if a share trade at 1,000, you could still buy $10 of them. So really, you increase uh, the avenue for retail investor to, to invest. And then uh, it's, I would say, the trolling phenomena that you described, where uh, people uh, just uh, speak on Reddit and, uh, and decide just to, to go against the market or just to act uh, as a crowd, uh, which is forbidden by the law. But in Reddit or Twitter, uh, people are uh, anonymous. So it will be very difficult to enforce uh, any of this. It's saying that when economy, uh, when the life will go back to normal, people will have less time, will have less disposable income. So it will be um, less of, a, of an issue. But right now, it, it's market manipulation and uh, that should be punished. But I, from, from my understanding, SEC will have very little. Uh, so what is the actual law? When what is the law that says that you you can't act as a crowd? I, I don't have a I don't have the the law uh, in front of me, uh, but that's considered as market uh, manipulation. I think this is probably the biggest risk for Robinhood right now is that they're getting attacked on both sides. One, the popularity of Robinhood has enabled this like new form of like retail trading, which in a world in which you know, FanDuel and Co. and like gaming and um, gambling online is easy and on an app. People just also use Robinhood, I think maybe the same way. But the other issue is that Robinhood, it's free to trade because they sell the order flow to hedge funds. So hedge funds then see what people are doing on Robinhood before it actually hits the market. And so then they trade based on that. And so they're getting a lot of attention for that practice. And they've had some issues with the SEC and with uh, the government for how they sell their order flow. And so you're kind of having both their Robinhood's clients and then the people Robinhood uses to execute their trades. Both sides of this are coming to light and they're kind of at war on Reddit, which is kind of the funny, weird thing is that the users of Robinhood are attacking the hedge funds who are seeing the Robinhood order flow that they're placing. And so it's this like vicious little circle which led to GameStop being up 100% at one point today, or yesterday. Yeah, it seems like there's some sort of short, short circuit here. I don't, I don't know enough about it, but this seems like all the all the signs of, of there being some sort of systemic issue. Yeah, the issue really for Robin Wood uh, was around disclosure, uh, because it was, a, a, I would say, a, it was not a proper publicity to um, advertise that it's free trading, when in fact, you have the order flow, uh, the, I would say, uh, in, the back, uh, in the back of the transaction, that's increased the spread. So it's not visible for the retail investor, but it does have a cost. Uh, so I think to my understanding for Robin Hood, their issue was more about disclosure than the, the hedge funds that are really uh, acting on the order flows, kind of front trading uh, the, the orders. Uh, but right now, it's very, uh, you look at, the, again, the, 
game shop, right, which was on the brinks of uh, bankruptcy and was among the top 10 shorted uh, stock from a hedge fund manager. So there is a, an index from Goldman Sachs that always uh, uh, take into account the top 10 uh, shorted stock. And the Reddit uh, uh, investor decided to to go against against this just to, to troll them. And there is one of them, uh, Malvin Capital Management, who is a, an outstanding investor, more than 30% uh, uh, return annual return uh, since uh, the funds was launched uh, back in 14 and 15 that was forced to to ask more money in order to keep uh, to keep it short right because he's losing a ton of money on on the game shop but he doesn't want to give up so he need more money more money just to keep his uh, his uh, shorts uh, open so we we will see but uh, there there there's something just so comical and just ridiculous about the fact that GameStop, I mean, I am a GameStop user. I go there to get my Xbox controllers fixed up every once So I've been there with you, Remy. We bought Xbox controllers there one time. Yeah. Um, it's just like a shitty blockbuster that all these people now, it's it, that are like, it's in the, it's in everyone's, it, it just seems like there's, there's, I don't know exactly how, but there seems to be too much speculative cash roiling around the global financial system all the time for shit like this to just be popping up. Yeah, there are a lot of liquidity. Uh, in the system, and so you see uh, bubbles or mania uh, at different angles of the of the market. So we will see. Uh, I was reading in the Financial Times they show the number of uh, companies that have doubled in the past uh, few weeks, and which are values at more than 10 times revenue. We are now close to uh, the 1998 uh, era. Um, so and and before it was like a uh, not even close. I mean, here we speak about, I think it was one or 20 companies when you release only kind of four or five. So mm-hmm. definitely there are mania at a certain uh, corner of the market. But you, you hear that. I mean, you remember we work, right? Everyone will say, oh, we work. Uh, that's the sign of a bubble for the market. It was just kind of like a, a one-off or uh, just a one mania. But that was because really of like... Anything. Wasn't that more because that like one crazy dude convinced just rich private investors? It wasn't like a public. They hadn't even gone public yet. It was just Correct. because this fucking insane person, that guy from SoftBank, believed in. Yeah, but the idea was saying yeah, there is too much money, and so there are too many people willing to lose a ton of money because money is free, and so that showed that there is a big bubble. And I mean, we work uh, just. Uh, uh, got uh, got destroyed, but nothing happened to the rest of the market. So, so what's going to uh, happen is like, are, are we on the cusp of a new like financial era? Is gold gonna? Are we gonna start carrying like gold shillings in our pockets soon? <laughs> no, we're fine. Yeah, gold is only if there's a nuclear war. I mean, I really like those folks that peddle it on cable news are are, are really like if there's a you know a, a nuclear warhead incoming into the United States, yes, I would buy gold. But other than that, I, I really think it's not a great return on investment. Well, once the nuclear warhead's incoming, it's too late, Nick, first of all. That's terrible investing. It's true. It's true. There are more and more uh, professional investors who have added to, to gold more as an edge than, uh, I would say, a, a directional bet. So, For example, in our strategy, we have 5% of gold. Uh, for the past few years because our view is like there is a probability and we don't know if it's low or high that inflation will increase 
and uh, inflation will be uh, negative for harder um, for will be negative for the U.S. dollar, but will be positive for um, raw material and uh, a commodity like uh, like gold. Um, so more and more people use it as a as an edge. You know, I mean, if you have like five percent, ten percent of your portfolio, it, it's just an insurance. And you know, worst case, you know, it, it goes down fifty percent, so your five percent become two point five percent, ten percent, five percent. But um, over over time, it has proven to be a a great, uh, I would say, insurance of last resort uh, in case of crisis. How much gold do you have in your portfolio, Nick? Like 60, 70 percent? I think I have a couple like silver dollars, <laughs> um, Krugerrand or whatever. Uh, no, yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would always watch these like G. Gordon Liddy ads on TV and found them to be kind of comical. No, I mean, I think that. It's it's amazing how you got the gold people on the old end and then you got the Bitcoin people on the young end, and both are you know very adamant for their own eccentric reasons. And both makes sort of sense, but it just seems like um, they're both hedges against just system failure or just things being changing in some dramatic way. What about you, Dan? Do you think we're more likely to be carrying around bitcoins or carrying around gold shillings? <laughs> what will a bitcoin look like? Will bitcoins be physical one day just because like no, I don't there will so. be a movement like a hipster movement where like, you know, vinyl came back? I don't think so. I think, I think it, if anything, we might have some shillings, but no, I don't I don't think either that's going to happen, but bitcoin, bitcoin in your pocket because it's on your phone i think it definitely happened can you buy physical manifestations of bitcoin like you know the symbol yes. of bitcoin you always see they're very little, few but they do exist they were a, a lot in the beginning like what are they they're just made they were made in the beginning and had the um short codes on them oh got it huh can you just buy like a piece of plastic that's molded to look like a bitcoin coin totally yeah i think hmm. a lot of people would believe you too and, uh, I mean, I think I might just line. do that and just buy. I'm not actually gonna buy actual Bitcoin. I'm just gonna buy like the eBay, Amazon, like fake physical manifestations. I saw, I saw someone on my uh, high school, uh, someone that I knew in high school on Instagram had Bitcoin earrings, like big Bitcoin dangle earrings. I was like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right, what else, Remy? What should us Americans sort of understand more from a global? francophone perspective the the vaccine the vaccine where i think the u.s are doing uh, relatively uh, well compared to uh, many uh, many european uh, countries and uh no an example is uh, is france i mean i'm, I'm just amazed again that uh, like in a movie u.s uh, saved the world uh, with two two vaccines uh, in france there were three initiatives one with uh, sanofi one with uh, Pasteur and one with uh, Merck and Pasteur, and the three fail. So you would have uh, relied on France to save the world. Uh, we would still be without vaccine or anything. While here in the U.S., uh, I mean Pfizer, you have BioNTech, which is also Germany. Uh, but but thanks to the power of the U.S., uh, you have two vaccines that seems to work. You know even AstraZeneca, which is a a, a British company. They have been able to launch a vaccine, but it seems that the uh, efficacy is not as, as good or is not as clean as the uh, Moderna and, and Pfizer. So once again, kudos to, uh, I would say, the uh, US IP uh, for on saving the world. It's very impressive again. Yeah, and I mean, to that point, 
I mean, I guess on this podcast we don't pat our nation on the back enough, but um, <laughs> I do. Yeah, that's true. Great job, Nick. Um, <laughs> thank you. Does thank you. the Moderna and Pfizer, if there are more um, variants or if the virus mutates more, those are way easier to just plug in a fix than the AstraZeneca or the other vaccines. So it could be very lucrative for the U.S. or beneficial for a long time to come because it looks like COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon. Or even, I mean, if you look fast forward, right, the the holy grail for vaccine would be a cancer vaccine. And we're far, far away from that. But, I mean, you have to realize that when you spoke with a lot of people back in June and July in the medical field, they were all telling you that the press is crazy uh, to think that we'll get a vaccine by the end of the day of the year. It's just impossible. It's unoff. It's unheard of. It's just fake news. And and with this new technology, right, mRNA, uh, it's revolutionary how quickly uh, you are able to tweak. Uh, in order to to change the vaccine to make it target whatever you want, and and with this uh, here is pure speculation on my end, but maybe in 20 years we won't speak about cancer anymore. Well, that's going to uh, be more um, CRISPR, right? CRISPR is the shit that's going to really fuck everything up. I, right? I don't know about this one. CRISPR is like even more intense. It's a technology where they can go in and specifically modify yeah, genes. Ex- yeah, exactly. Ex- exact links of your can you do that retroactively or does that to design like designer babies no you can do it retroactively you can take you they figured out you can like change your current eye color change your own personal genetics using this technology but here here, the one hurdle of gene therapy it's not science but ethic it's a bit the same with uh, autonomous uh, vehicles how you will we don't live in an ethical culture remy this is not france we live in a, you know, bottom line driven culture. I just don't see that. Like, <laughs> I, I agree with with the with the idea that there are going to be ethical concerns, but I just don't see our country stepping up to. That's why I think there needs to be like a better international world order where we enforce sort of international agreements and stuff like that. Because it's obvious you don't I, see the the uh, like the Chinese or the Russians using CRISPR technology. And then the Americans immediately follow suit. No, 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 no. And, and one reason, it, one reason is money. Uh, the the uh, the legal costs in the U.S. are significantly more expensive than in China and Russia, and that's why for autonomous vehicle, my view and uh, many many uh, uh, smart investor view is that China will be able to launch an autonomous vehicle ahead of uh, of America just because of the, the legal cost uh, hurdle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't, the Chinese court system is a, is a joke. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say they have an independent judiciary or-, or Be careful, you're going to get a sanction just like Mike Pompeo. No, I, it's a badge of honor in my book. Um, yeah, I'm very happy that the Biden administration has called what's going on in Xinjiang a genocide. I think that was a, a very nice, very good positive step to take. Uh, despite how Jen Psaki was forced to say it in a press conference, but I think it was a good step to say. But yeah, yeah that, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that the the Chinese might innovate when it comes to autonomous vehicles because they have no, um, they they don't have the bureaucratic loophole, you know, bureaucratic hoops that they have to jump through. But I do think that our system, in the long run, is far superior because you don't have you have safety measures. It's it's a, there's a sort of a governing consensus 
when deciding an issue, whereas, you know, the Chinese, they, they have no concerns about eminent domain. It's just the way their, their, their tyrannical system of government is structured. Yeah, you're also just anti-China. We all I'm not. I'm, I'm pro-Chinese people. I wish that they, I, I think, I believe that they should be free. That's the difference. I am not anti-China. I'm, I'm very much pro-Chinese, pro-Hong Kong, pro-Xinjiang. And, and I think that it's, it's anti-Chinese to defend or uh, praise or hold appeasement type views regarding the Chinese government, which oppresses its own people. Now, I'm trying to be inflammatory. So we boost our ratings as a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not doing a good job. I'm trying to be like Crossfire in the 90s. No, I liked it. That was very inflammatory. I would just say, and like we said before, is that that is not the way to get Chinese people to like acquiesce to American desires, but that is on a different podcast. It's clearly not the strategy to to tell the Chinese <laughs> that if we want if you want to make changes, then you need to be more like the US for these human rights, yada, 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 because then it just gets into this what about? What about this? What about that? Look at the history of the U.S. over the course of the last hundred years. Well, I so, think the difference is what they're what they're doing now, and what you know. I, I'm not. I will not say that the U.S. has had a clean, clear, squeaky clean history when it comes to human rights. I think, on the contrary, we've had egregious stains in our history. But I mean, we're not we're not currently in 2021 committing genocide. Yeah, but the we Chinese have to step back government like, is currently in 2021 committing genocide. So that's, I just this think is, this is also going to be an issue with like the climate change debate as well, because the Chinese are going to keep saying like, well, why should we have to cut our emissions more when you were in an industrial nation polluting for hundreds of years, much more than we were as the world's largest polluter. So there's going to be like a lot of these retroactive conversations going on. And I just think like, it's the best move for Americans. And I think this happens in our own politics as well, is to sort of like, I don't know, chop, stop stop trying to always play the like holier than now card and just try to move forward practically. And that's why I think that with the, the Republicans and Democrats right now, that, that that's what needs to happen, especially with this like reconciliation type stuff, is that there just needs to be like quick movement. Just go, there's, there's too much of this like sort of dancing around one another. It feels like this has been happening for years and years and years where... People are okay with the status quo, right? Like Remy's saying, people want divided government. And so big things seem less and less possible. I mean, on, on this I mean, on this topic, um, there is something striking, you know, speaking about the, the U.S. Uh, versus uh, China. I think its life expectancy is uh, longer now in China than in the U.S. And uh, you could also say that the average health or the median health uh, among uh, uh, Chinese people is uh, better than the median or average health uh, for American people. So while uh, the U.S. are very strong uh, on uh, free speech or democracy, y there is an angle to say that the state is failing uh, really to taking care of their constituent in the U.S. when you compare with, uh, with China. Well, I was surprised to read, you know, Chinese census and, and Chinese public health uh, agency uh, data saying that, you know, their life expectancy is in, you know, 120 years in China. I mean, I'm making <laughs> a joke because I, I don't I mean, I really think any data coming out of China is going to be skewed and is going to be potentially inaccurate and will try to attempt to paint the, the government as as 
improving the livelihoods of its people, uh, despite, you know, not having robust, uh, honest, transparent uh, data collection processes. I think anything that comes out of the Chinese government from a data perspective, I think, is skewed towards one direction, and that's making the regime look good. So, I, I mean, that could be true. And we do have health issues in America. I mean, we have obesity rates are pretty high. Stress levels are high. Um, you know, uh, Americans don't take vacation. And the, there's just all sorts of little factors that, that are impacting U.S. U.S. health, public health. But I mean, to say that the Chinese, I mean, but to Remy's larger us, point, I think that's it pretty does, ludicrous. I mean, it. I think it. There is a point to be made that the the U.S. seems to have lower quality of life and more internal strife all the time, where the Chinese seem to be, over the last thirty or forty years, considering. I mean, w- w- it's Total hard bullshit, to. Ju- by the way. It's harder to. How could you deny the, the the quality of life and the rise of China? There's been like uh, America has been literally writing articles about this for my entire life about how China has gone from being an emerging market to being a world superpower and has taken over as the largest economy in the world. So it I is a superpower, but what, to say that they don't have strife, I mean, they just cover it up. There's censorship, press censorship. There's no transparency to prove any of these points. I'm not I saying mean, so that we. It could be true. It might not be. That's the issue. I just, it seems like the uh, the idea that, um, I, I don't know, it seems like the Chinese people, regardless of what Americans feel like their quality of life is, seem like there is a huge amount of support internally for their country. And I understand you can say that about any dictatorship. You'd say the same thing about Putin or whatever, that, oh yeah, 90% of the people like him. But in some situations, it seems like the people genuinely do feel this nationalistic pride and believe their lives are being bettered by these people, regardless of the Western standards we try to place upon them. If you know it's, what I'm uh, I mean, I, I really don't buy into this cultural relativism to say that, oh, no, democracy is just a Western habit. You know, the Chinese people don't can't handle democracy. It's not culturally ingrained. It has nothing to do with being handled. That's in some way a form of racism towards Chinese people. I don't see. I don't get why you would use the word handle. I, I think also the the Chinese have or all people have sort of a right to dictate their own destiny. And I think. And, but and the Chinese think, have not been given that opportunity to dictate their own destiny. Their government is chosen for them. That's the difference. I mean, who under what in what world in 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 recent history in recent Chinese history in the last hundred years, when when you know since since forty nine when when have the Chinese people gotten a say? about what their government should look like. I mean, I'm not arguing I mean, that they, they had I, a democratic system of electing their politicians. They actually did try to have a say, and they were murdered in the streets for it. So Yeah, I mean, it seems like if we're going to constantly be forcing our ideals on other countries, then this conversation is never going to move forward. It's always going to... Why is universal human rights our ideals? These are universal human rights. I mean, they're just being human. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. I don't know. I, I don't think the I don't I don't think that should be selectively these rights should be applied selectively to certain nationalities and not others. Yeah, but we like have a lot of we we have very fine relationships with countries like Israel and Egypt and Saudi Arabia, but China we have huge issues with their human rights abuses. There's just so much hypocrisy over how America chooses to use its exceptionalism in this situation. We're so exceptional, you need to be more like us. And this other situation, oh no, we really respect your heritage. We believe that this is your cultural right. Like I, I see your point about how we, we should apply these 
to all allies and enemies alike. Uh, and that's just essentially been a lack of inertia on the part of foreign policy thinkers. But yeah, I just, I mean, back going back to the China thing and, and, and I, I mean, Remy, I didn't mean to, to be kind of aggressive or whatever. And I'm just doing that as a ploy to get more ratings, uh, more listeners for this podcast. I think it's, it's very fair. Uh, it's very fair that the, the data comes from the government and uh, very, I would say, uh, <laughs> it's smart to be uh, to be cautious about the, the quality of the data. And I think we, we know like many of the, the data provided is wrong. But in healthcare, right, there are Westernized companies that sell drugs uh, that are on the ground and are able to uh, um, opening new uh, hospital and able to, to see the, the rate of obesity, uh, the rate of uh, cancer, uh, so the the data, right? You could have a more independent uh, data point here, and 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 frankly, I, I don't have a I don't have a an oligopolistic view on, on this really to be able to see if uh, if it uh, concur or if it just uh, arrive to a different outcome than um, the the government uh, data that is what i'm a bit afraid in this debate it's that we are getting more toward the middle ground in the sense that in europe for example you, you definitely have seen uh, human rights taking a, a step back since the beginning of this pandemic with curfews and lockdown i mean measures that have been used uh, the last time during uh, world war ii now uh, are being used like a if it's nothing, that let, let's go for another lockdown uh, for, for a few weeks, uh, it's okay. And that I, I see it's uh, more uh, if a slippery slope where instead of trying to, to stay on really one, one side of the spectrum in terms of uh, liberty and human rights, that I'm, I'm a bit concerned to see that in Europe uh, there, are a bit, uh, there is a bit of a shift. And on the opposite side, you speak about China, but I thought... What we have seen in Russia um, has been very interesting over the past few few days and few few weeks, uh, where you, it seems to me that the population uh, uh, is demonstrating uh, as rarely before against uh, against Putin. So again, maybe the line will will, uh, will move. Um, so I see. Is that it, uh, because Navalny came back? That's pretty intense that he came back. Yeah, like... and and during uh, his time in Germany, where uh, he was treated for uh, he got poisoned, right? Um, he, he was able to um, create a documentary. Um, if you heard about that, about mm-hmm. a, a, a palace, a palace um, owned by uh, I think the the KGB. Um, but indirectly, in fact, is owned by Putin. Putin, and I, yeah. And I invite you to take a look that this property is, if I'm got that right, 17 times bigger than Monaco, right? Monaco, the city country. Damn. And and inside this documentary uh, showed based on the plans uh, they were able to get from the the architects the the an amount of luxury that is just outrageous and that has really sparked uh, all the demonstration in in russia so that's again the power of social media which make it more and more difficult for a very totalitarianism country to keep uh, a strong uh, strong handle on the population 
Yeah, that's intense. But I also don't see that changing anything anytime soon. Putin seems to have that country under control. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. He, I mean, he, he's. I, I really think Navalny is a is a patriot. He's a Russian patriot, and he's a hero to Russia. And unfortunately, Russia has been ruled essentially since 2000 by, you know, kleptocracy, just a just a a, a regime of thieves to murder those that that speak up. And uh, yeah, it just takes a lot of bravery to to go back to Russia. And, and yeah, fight. wait, what is is he in jail now? What has happened to him? He is. He's in jail. They trumped up charges against him. Because he had some, they trumped up some tax charge against him before he got poisoned. And under that settlement or agreement, he was supposed to check in with like a parole office every few months. But then when he got poisoned, he fled, he was treated in Germany and was in a coma for a long time. And so he missed some like, you know, probation meeting or something because he was in a coma in Germany being treated for Novichok poisoning. So the Russians like arrested him on some bullshit charge that. It's, I mean, this is only in Russia would they do that, this kind of weird Kafka-esque way. They, they, they charged him with missing his meetings because I mean, he was in a different him. country. <laughs> yeah, they poisoned him and he was a different country under treatment. Yeah, probably also trying to just escape the KGB agents who were trying to poison him again. Yeah, I mean, it's nuts. That's, I mean, those people demonstrating right behind him are extremely brave. Yeah, that's that, true. Uh, I'm sure that they could just get a blast of whatever poison in their face, sarin poison over the crowd. There's a a real nice hot place in hell for Vladimir Putin. Just waiting for him. I'll say that. <laughs> I like and it. She, and there's room for Xi Jinping and and uh, Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran as well. Keep keep an eye uh, keep an eye with people with a uh, an umbrella uh, walking around you. Yeah, yeah. Remy's referencing the this KGB assassination in the, I think in the seventies where they poisoned a Bulgarian dissident in London with a an umbrella with a tip that had a ricin ricin which was a poison. They killed some Bulgarian dissident in London on a bridge, stabbing him in the ankle with this this uh, umbrella stick filled with ricin. I think uh, even even recently this technique was was used with a. A dissident that uh, was in London. Uh, hmm. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> we'll do. Watch, watch out, Nick. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please tune in the next week when we will be talking about well, just anything we feel like. Please send in questions or comments.